0: Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kubchand, and my guest today is Ali Khan.
1: Hi, Krish. I got
0: to know... Uh, I uh, I got to know Ali through an introduction from my previous boss at the Charter City Institute, Carl Peterson. Shout out to Carl. Um, and in our first conversation, we touched upon some of my favorite topics. These related to new city developments, innovative financial structures, alternate asset classes, and lessons from the growth of kind of you know the Gulf State capital, um, in particular Dubai. So Ali spent most of his time. Applying these ideas as a lawyer, both in crypto, but also when it comes to uh, specifically UAE and Dubai law. Now, with that in mind, I would love to get started. So, without further delay, Ali, can you share a bit of
1: a timeline and backstory of your kind of professional history and how you've gotten to where you are today? Sure thing, Krish. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, uh, I think my my uh, narrative arc for my career, my professional journey, has been. Some would say interesting in a good way, and some would say interesting in a negative way, depending on how much you like stability. Um, (laughs) I started off many, many years ago uh, studying Arabic and history as an undergraduate, Um, and I think that's quite important. Um, The reason why I wanted to study Arabic and history was because Arabic as a language Uh, allowed you to be able to take the patterns that you see in the world and challenge them through thinking about them in a completely different way. Um, Why is that material? Because a lot of my career further on uh, ended up becoming uh, the sort of career that I wanted on the basis that when you're able to apply yourself through different mindsets, that is a fundamentally important part of working in things like, you know, frontier markets, global south work, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It also is useful when it comes to creating structure out of chaos, which is a lot of the work that I do with the law, but also what I find fundamentally interesting about um, things like the Charter Cities Institute. So, anyway, I, I studied Arabic and history. I had the pleasure of living in Damascus, in Syria, uh, before the war, 2009, 2010, uh, where I worked as a journalist helping to set up one of Syria's first English-language daily newspapers. And so having the privilege of work at a very, very early part of my career uh, in the thick of the Middle East, um, in areas which weren't usually trodden by, you know, Western uh, interests, was was amazing. I mean, firstly, I had the time of my life in Syria. Um, it was an incredible place to be a young guy in his early twenties. Um, it was, uh, you know, living in the old town in Damascus was, um, as an urban historian and as, as somebody who uh, was a tour guide throughout all of his studies to uh, afford his, his fun and games. Um, I was like a kid in a toy store in Damascus. It was incredible. Um, Syria turned to Syria. I started getting interested in politics. Um, And I I ended up in sort of the grassroots politics world uh, as things were getting interesting in around 2011, 2012 in London. I was president of SOAS Students' Union, uh, which is a very political students' union, and uh, it gave me a lot of insight into um, the sort of efforts of trying to make things happen politically from the ground up within the structures of extant institutions. I had my thoughts on it and I had my queries on it. um, And I felt that the best way to get a compelling understanding of how I can make an impact in the world was not to go into politics, but rather to go and understand structures a little bit more. One of the things I was doing during that time at SOAS was building governance structures. And my approach to governance structures is human-centric design, right? So instead of looking at it from a top-down approach, look at the reality of who you're working with and what you're trying to achieve. Take a number of the different variables and create a balance around that to find the path of least resistance towards creating structures that work, taking into account, you know, upside, taking into account risk, taking into account the whole sort of, you know, 360 degree understanding of what an operation of an organization is about. In helping to do that with Sauer Students Union and for a couple of startups and charities at the time, I got really compelled into this. Uh, and so I started training as a lawyer. Um, at the time, being the gobby guy that I am, I thought, okay, well, I'm best placed being a barrister, so I I went off and trained uh, as a barrister, got called to the bar, but life very quickly through a series of um, extraordinary circumstances led me through to Dubai, uh, where I work for DLA Piper, uh, which is a very large law firm, uh, working as the bridge between onshore civil code and offshore common law. Uh, the, the UAE is one of those extraordinary jurisdictions where it had the foresight to say, okay, well, the relationship between the concept of sovereignty and the concept of law from a Western point of view is something which we can probably play with a little bit. Instead of having a method of changing our laws to adapt to the trade that we want, which is an intensely political thing to do, why don't we just carve out a square mile uh, and make it common law? Common law being much easier to foster international trade through. And so, in around the the early the mid nineties of the two thousands, uh, the DIFC, the Dubai International Financial Center, was born, and this fascinated me completely. It completely blew my mind. Even when I was at school, I was so interested in it. My mother was brought up in Dubai. We've had a long family history in Dubai. Dubai is where I spent a lot of my early years, and so this piece of innovation, I thought, was a totally fascinating way. To deal with the challenge that is constant was at least constantly thought of once upon a time, of how do you develop with you know quotation marks on either side of that word, um, emerging markets jurisdictions towards a you know towards structures which which work and the traditional theory was it's a top down thing you have you know government that changes laws and that seeps back down into structures and bureaucracies to create you know dynamic change that of course is challengeable as a theory so the DIFC was a fascinating thing and I worked as a bridge between the DIFC and then the ADGM the Abu Dhabi global markets when it was formed and the onshore civil code jurisdictions of the UAE code switching between the two relevant to what I was saying earlier about being able to code switch between Arabic and and English thinking in different patterns thinking about different ways in which justice works from a mental point of view etc um and it was it was amazing it was fascinating um I at that point, thought, okay, well, I have a choice here. Either I'm going to sit in a law firm and wait for work to come to me, or I'm going to engage my entrepreneurial side. I went off to engage my entrepreneurial side. I was part of a group of friends that set up uh, one of the region's first alternative Arab music festivals, Wasla Music Festival. Um, I nice. set that up in Dubai, uh, taking uh, into account the zeitgeist of the time that was happening across the Arab community, both within the Middle East and outside, this this extraordinary uh, exp- explosion of expression uh, within Arabic culture and within Arabic uh, milieu, uh, but as uh, a modern format and therefore taking modern tropes within a quite a sophisticated classical form. So, in other words, you know, there's a band like there's a band called Mashua Leila from Lebanon. Who are headlining at our first festival? Um, The sort of music they play is somewhere sometimes between Daft Punk and like uh, Al Mutanabbi uh, as an old Arabic sort of poet, right? In terms of its sophistication and it's beautiful from my my, from my point of view. I think it was incredible sort of work. So we set up a a festival for that, trying to take um, some sort of trying to make some sort of platform for that zeitgeist. Following that, came back to London, uh, consulted for a while, wondering what to do next. Um, <clears throat> things started shifting quite a bit, I think, politically around the world around 2016, 2017. There was a huge amount of focus that was um, being placed on the role of institutions, the role of structures. I started you know, thinking about these things too. Uh, and then COVID happened. And during COVID, um, I did two things. Firstly, I was part of a group of people that set up an asset management firm called Mandaleo. Uh, they're looking to build private equity roll-ups. And our first uh, sector of interest was or is uh, veterinary medicine, um, the thesis of which is very strong, and I can go into it, but I, I don't think that's what we're talking about today. And also, to keep my, my legal hat sort of warm, um, I started working, as you mentioned, with the Charter Cities Institute looking into these structures and these really really interesting ways in which one develops equitable societies uh and i don't think there's ever such a thing as a greenfield site uh in the world there's always somebody who has some skin somewhere in the game but the idea of taking some space and building an equitable sort of environment urban environment around that kind of brought in all the different interests i have together um so yeah, since since that since since COVID, um, AS Legal is where I work now um, in Dubai. It's a firm that is split between the sort of traditional litigation work we've always done, uh, a lot of uh, sort of corporate work within the Web three space as well. I take uh, a lead in the the DeFi and the Web three practice. Um, and our client base uh, is mostly in the DeFi space, uh, with regards to Web three, as well as a lot of traditional um, players from uh, the you know from the market in Dubai as exists. So we, we're quite broadly based in terms of our capacity to be able to service a wide range of what we think are sectors of interest with regards to how the emerging markets and their relationships with Dubai and the UAE at large. Will uh, will fold out. Uh, that was a lecture rather than a dramatic arc, uh, but that's what you ask for, and that's what you get. Fantastic, I deeply appreciate that. Um, I'm going
0: to go right to the beginning of that, you know, apparent lecture, go for it. and I want to tap more into those two years in Syria, in particular, because one thing that I find kind of fascinating is the transition of a region from being within conflict to post-conflict to what are the seeds that are required to create prosperity versus This you know, uh, simmering state of otherwise you know pain that tends to exist in many other countries that are not able to unlock that. For example, Libya. Um, I'm curious. You know, Syria recently entered the Arab League again after 12 years. What are your thoughts on the last 12 years of what's kind of happened? One and two, what is kind of
1: the macro story you're telling yourself about the region as a whole? Yeah. Um, So, firstly, um, I I couldn't talk about Syria without talking about it from a human perspective. being in a situation where you know, one year you're lucky enough to be invited to, you know, expat drinks events at you know the EU ambassadors' residence and people raising glasses, saying, "Here's to here's to Bashar al-Assad. He's the the new diamond of Europe's relationship with the Middle East, the new Erdogan." And then, literally within a matter of months, that turning into a flu- full-blown war. Um, it's tragic. It's tragic, but it also makes you think quite a bit about about certain things. Um it the reality is what Syria taught me was that um relying on the status quo in terms of a you know a balance of power a balance of peace in this in this day and age is a very dangerous thing to do unless you are fully 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 invo- uh, informed about uh, as many things as you can be informed in, which no no one party can be unless they are, you know, a type of party that, frankly, none of us have access to. Um, and and so, from from my perspective, uh, I always caveat whatever I think about with regards to Syria with the reality that I do have some emotional skin in the game. Notwithstanding that, what happened over the course of the last twelve years was. Um, you know, from an economic perspective, uh, not only devastating, but in terms of the shift that's happened, uh, it's obviously been very difficult to get reports from the ground. but what we've you know what we've gleaned is that the old uh, elite communities and the old uh, basically anyone who could got out, who replaces them, right in terms of the infrastructure that exists, it's those guys that uh, had to stick around, ended up, you know sometimes becoming warlords. Uh, and therefore, taking positions of economic power within certain industries and institutions that then drive the future of the country, and that's not a model unique to Syria. That happens quite often across, um, you know, various parts of the world. Um, and so, as Syria now goes through its next phase, its reconciliation, so to speak, there is a lot of interest in, uh, you know, re- re- let's say, returning Syria back into the fold, such that it is part of. Uh, you know the the economic opportunity across the Middle East, but it will take a long long time before the infrastructure is anywhere close to being able to service that properly. Bear in mind even before the war it's not as though it's not as though Syria was um you know like Ukraine, for example, not we're not talking about a Western country here. before the war, Syria was um you know still in this bizarre, Post-Soviet, but um, you know, pre-liberalization environment. The best way I can show you know identify this to somebody going down the street is you'd see, you'd see a KFC, one KFC in Damascus, which was actually like Kuwaiti, Kuwaiti fried chicken, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, or you'd you'd see all the hallmarks of a demand and a desire for Western, um, you know, uh, goods. But without the capacity to allow that to happen, and so there's this sort of halfway house that existed, um, and it is, you know, it it it's an, it was an authoritarian government. It still is an authoritarian government. It it holds, uh, it was liberalizing. It apparently it had a plan to uh, to sort of engage with the wider global economy. But uh, history took a different turn. So going back to your question about what's what's needed, uh, so to speak, there's a lot that's needed there's a lot of political um frankly sort of you know conversations behind the scenes that are required before there's any uh real capacity to understand where a safe opportunity lies within Syria it's also just incredibly fragile right now right you know you've got you've still you've still got a lot of different players in the region that have a lot of different interests either side of Syria um which uh which are obviously going to affect the entire region and so everybody just kind of holding on to their pants a little bit at the moment uh with a little bit of peace having said all that i have a, a very very good friend of mine who's on the ground right now in syria she's uh half syrian half libyan um she gets to go to syria um relatively easier than than others um and she's sort of sending reports from the ground uh, obviously whatever she's comfortable sending and there's nothing like you know hearing in the background of her videos uh the bird song, the very unique bird song you hear in damascus the you can almost smell the orange blossom you can you know Damascus has a very very specific very very beautiful vibe about it, and that's always going to remain attractive, so you know watch this space I'd say um it's much easier talking about somewhere like lebanon right which which follows a particular model of disaster. Syria is quite a unique um circumstance. Fascinating.
0: Can you actually share, I know you visited Beirut not too long ago. Can you share kind of your macro thesis on Lebanon then as well?
1: Uh, <laughs> Lebanon is, uh, yeah, my, my, my heart is Lebanon shapes. I, I absolutely adore Lebanon and have a, a very deep, um, I have a very deep sort of, I have the privilege of not having to rely on the space. So I only have to love it. But if I had to rely on the space, it would be love, hate hundred percent. Um, When I was on the ground there, and this was probably about six, seven months ago, um, there were four different currencies that were being used at the same time. There was the lira, the dollar, the bira, and the lola, right? And you've got a circumstance where in the complete collapse of the state institutions, and we're talking about total collapse here. We're talking about there not being a government. We're talking about the economy going completely kaput. Um, a series of events, including the the blast um, during COVID uh, in the, the Beirut port, as well as a number of other economic factors that have affected Lebanon at large, it just meant that it's in total disaster. And it meant that, you know, the price of a coffee, uh, book value price for coffee, for example, could be like $42 if you paid with your credit card, right? But in terms of lollers, or in terms of beer, in terms of what the gray sort of market of currency, which everyone uses, um, that's where, you know, you get a much more reasonable price. Um, and the way to do it, honestly, if you're, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a foreign card is you go to a, an ATM, you take out dollars, you then go down the road to the telephone shop, uh, and you swap that at a grey sort of grey market currency exchange for the actual market rate, the grey market rate of uh, of the paper lira, and you never use your card again during the day. You only spend in cash on sort of you know grey market prices. Uh, it's it's extraordinary, it's extraordinary. You have to be a forex trader to buy a pint of milk, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but having said that, and you know what's interesting, Krish. Having said that, so, having known Lebanon for quite a while, and having having seen it in its different phases, this was the first time, and I've 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 tested. So you know, Andre, he's my he's my business partner at AS Legal, I have a lot of friends from Lebanon, etc. He's he, he's he's from Lebanon as well, and I, I share this with them. They agree. When I was there, it's the first time I spoke to taxi drivers and such, and. And they said, "I said, how's life? It looks, yeah, you know, looks like it's really difficult. Electricity goes off and on like every day, and you know, basic infrastructure is working. And uh, I'll never forget. One of them said, you know, this is the happiest I've been in forty years. The happiest I've been.' Um, and he went on this deep rant as we were waiting for somebody else to come to the taxi about how, for years, it was Sunni and Shia and Christian and Druze, and you know, these sort of factional sort of." splits and this assumption that no one's ever going to get along now having this one common god one common enemy called the economy is is a a really useful you know thing and you know and, and and actually it does help and and to be honest on the ground fascinating things are happening I've always advocated that if any country was going to be the first country that actually properly experimented with blockchain technology for decentralized services and governance and and actually the development of goods and the tokenization of communities, it's going to be Lebanon. I still hold that bet very, very strongly, and I keep I keep a very close uh, eye on Lebanon. As a result, it it kind of works perfectly as a present infrastructure to make that happen for a variety of reasons. Um, and so much so that I have found out in the last week, and I haven't gotten in touch with them yet, but I know that there is a small town, I think, in the Shuf Valley that is building a uh, a tokenized community. And oh, wow. they are looking to essentially play with this idea that all of us have dreamt about in the in the blockchain world of what happens when you create a community, tokenize it, and are able to allow it to be able to benefit directly from the value of its existence, let alone its activity and, and produce, um, in a wider market, uh, and I think it's super, super exciting. Um, it works because Lebanon and the Lebanese experiment, and this is relevant to wider emerging market theory or frontier market theory, whatever you want to call it. But bear in mind, you know these these infrastructures, these state infrastructures, have more often than not been placed on top of communities that have not identified as states throughout their history instead they've identified as communities they've identified as wider regional cultures they've identified in a number of ways and economically more often than not they've identified as urban areas right the whole concept <clears> of the nation state from the perspective of an you know from an economic perspective does hold um credence from points of view of agrarian cultures right the europe having borders from one farm to the next makes sense because after you know, people fight over the land for a particular reason um in a lot of economies lebanon slightly different but in a lot of co- economies across emerging markets you're talking about big urban areas that were le- that were created leveraged mostly through trade and trade routes right and so the idea of identifying with the wider state is a is a relatively new concept when actually people's family histories identify with their place in Damascus, their place in Aleppo, their place in Timbuktu, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. And of course, that's not a gen that's not a universal generalism, but that is a truth to some extent. And so therefore one looks at the concept of building urban environments or developing urban environments. One has to bear that in mind when, when addressing the frontier market issue, that it's different to just building a city in the middle of, you know, next to Milton Keynes, right? Um, we're talking about sort of a an actual form of identity that has a lot of political relevance and therefore can build uh, some sort of governance structure, whether decentralized or not, I would say should be decentralized, in order to actually leverage the most value out of it in a way that that works. In other words, imagine a situation where each city or each urban environment, if people identify with that, had its own capacity to have its own economic identity that worked in tandem rather than in competition with other economic identities within the same framework in order to create macro value. You know, that's not a million miles away from being able to happen. And that's something that I'm deeply interested in. And on a professional level, we look at this from a not just a legal basis in terms of how that would interact with underlying jurisdictions, but also from a governance basis. Let's take the DIFC and the ADGM in the UAE as an example. These are common law urban areas that have been built. A lot of work has been done to find the interoperability between the laws of common law and where they might conflict with the uh, the surrounding civil code jurisdiction. Right. So in other words, you have a style of law that is for a community in theory sitting in the middle of a wider pool of law that is created for a wider reason. and they don't have to conflict. they can be interoperable. they can be inter you know intermeshed to a certain extent. Conflicts of law might exist when it comes to, for example, under common law, there is no assumption of good faith um, when you're when you're entering into a contract, you have to write it in if you want it there. Uh, Under common law, there is no uh, force majeure that's automatically there. You have to write it in. Um, Whereas in civil code, usually that's the case. Now, you know, if you know that's an issue, you address it in the legislation covering, you know, the entire framework of how these two jurisdictions operate. But then, wider still, when you look at sort of governance structures, how governance works in one jurisdiction, a civil code jurisdiction, how governance would work in a common law jurisdiction might conflict. So you build governance structures that look holistically at how you can build something which stands the test of time in terms of its capacity to dynamically work between them, right? Um, and these are the sort of things that are super important because we are getting into an era where it's super easy to download templates uh, that aren't fit for purpose. The whole idea of creative lawmaking and creative structuring is never more import- has never been more important than now. And it does take Folks who are interested in laws, not just for, you know, the, the, the yields they can have on their time, but also are interested from the perspective of what they can provide as a service towards new structures in a brand new world we're working in. Fantastic. One thing I want to highlight there is uh,
0: an anecdote regarding Lebanon's currency situation. Firstly, you, know, you mentioned the lira, dollar, bira, lora, right? Is that correct? Lola. Lola, uh, it sounds like a haiku on hyperinflation, yeah, and um, yes. <laughs> yes, and yes. and I I think the importance of what the vision of cryptocurrency could be for regions like this cannot be understated. And the reason why I say this is because one the previous guest that we had was this guy Zach Marks, the founder of Geofinance. Geofinance is this crypto protocol that's lending to small to medium sized businesses in emerging markets like Kenya, Philippines, India. Um, yeah. He was talking about the $5 trillion kind of credit gap. And in particular, in tackling that, the thing they're trying to kind of create a more flexible structure for is essentially community finance. Ideally, you have these bottoms-up communities, be it, you know, coming from Gibraltar, my family comes from like a Cindy family, right? And you have like the Cindy community, which has certain social structures in terms of sharing knowledge, but also certain communal structures in terms of one of them does better. Oh, cool. Now I have money I can put in the pot and lend elsewhere. It's a win-win And you have this high trust context for that. The thing that geofinance wanted to try and do is essentially come up with a crypto native way to do that. Because right now, uh, one, if you have these communities, sometimes fraud may happen, et cetera. But two, more importantly, um, they're they're capital limited. And so the idea is, can you unlock global capital for these types of structures that are highly communal in their lending and and trust-based kind of methods, right? So that's one thing. But the second thing I want to point to here in terms of not taking for granted the current way in which things are done is uh lebanon's head of the central bank the governor of the central bank um literally like last month there was like an interpol warrant set out for him the reason being he's quite literally stealing from at least at least this is what the accusation says he's stealing from the central bank right and um with the cryptocurrency that becomes very difficult right um it, it, no, no one can steal centrally from you know the bitcoin reserves and i think uh We're still very far from the infrastructure that enables that, but not losing sight of that possibility, despite sometimes seeing stuff which may compel
1: one in a different direction when it comes to thinking about what crypto kind of truly is. uh, I think it's very important, so I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, 100%, Krish. I mean, it's it's worth really bearing in mind that anyone who has a view on crypto Go and sit in Lebanon when you as a doctor or as a lawyer or as, you know, as anyone who's had any savings in your local banks suddenly watch all those savings plummet and you will do anything to get them out of the jurisdiction and somewhere safe. Right. Mm, what, on, on, what crypto managed to do during the great crash, you know, was it saved a lot of families right And it, it is there for a reason. Now I don't really care what anyone has to say about the technology for better or for worse. Try and argue against that. like genuinely try and argue against that and I will I will give you a very, very verbose and gobby argument back. the, rea- the reality is very very clear. If you look at crypto from parts of the world where the use of digital assets requires a remedial cost from the institutions we have, good for you. Think about the role of digital assets from the perspective of parts of the world where crypto can be the remedy to a lot of the damage that has happened to those parts of the world. Uh, that's that's what I'll, I'll say about that for now. Incredibly pertinent. Uh, in
0: one of the other previous podcasts that we had, we were talking about Erdogan's election and the hyperinflation that was being experienced in, well, the inflation, the, the significant inflation being experienced in Turkey. And uh, as I was reading one of these pieces, it was talking about, um, you know, spend first, account later policies in particular, uh, with reference to um, one of the grand palaces that were being built for um, the for the president, and um, you know, you, you imagine being a citizen there and seeing the value of your kind of savings just depreciate on a uh, you know daily basis, and then you see that kind of tribal transaction done by a government that's for you. Um, I don't want to get too much into kind of politics
1: here, but it's just you know,
0: it, I I totally see the value to this. It would certainly um, have
1: an effect, wouldn't it, Krish? it would certainly most, have most def- an effect.
0: Most definitely. Um, by the way, if, for anyone who's listening, if they are interested in this, you know these are markets that are incredibly important, but hard to kind of get access to and hard to kind of start wrapping your head around I'd highly recommend getting in touch with Ali or myself to put you in touch with Ali um, uh, to dig deeper because I think there are still, the, the people who are at the forefront of crypto, it seems to be the case, are not at the forefront
1: or not fully kind of immersed in these markets as well, right? And I think like bridging that is incredibly important. Hundred percent, hundred percent. We can we can talk a little bit about the crypto community, actually, uh, which is which is which is associated with. We've now sort of segued from, uh, you know, the, the concept of its role in emerging markets. But let's, you know, in a, in a world where every market is emerging, which is the crypto world, um, it is important to note that there's a difference between decentralization and isolation, right? Uh, To to really help, and this is something that I talk about quite a bit, decentralization's role in the concept of decentralized finance is its relationship vis-a-vis the institutions that currently exist and the channels of value that currently exist, right? What decentralizes not is a gold rush of individuals running and trying to grab whatever they can. Uh, And unfortunately, you know, naturally, I think the space has created that sort of environment, but it is 100% guaranteed that the winners of this decentralized world will use the technology appropriately to work in collaboration rather than in competition in a decentralized arena. Uh, And that is happening. As as, As crypto is becoming more and more institutionalized, there is the capacity for a lot of collaboration to exist. Uh, between communities. Now, the question is, how do you build a community? And that's the fundamentally important thing that we look at, right? From a behavioral perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a an intangible perspective, as well as from the structural perspective of governance and and structures that actually allow and reflect how a community should think. There was there's this beautiful idea of how do you build a DAO, right? A decentralized autonomous organization. The problem with DAOs is that they don't necessarily reflect what many people who crave DAOs really want, which is you know, this sort of community in which to be able to create governance structures for voting. DAOs were mostly created in order to be able to apportion value on a micro level to people doing development projects, right? It's a different thing between that and if you want to get a group of artists together to try and collaborate. But a time will come where that is available. Uh, it's more a case of human beings creating that first and seeing if the technology can fulfill that purpose rather than relying on this cool, sexy technology and molding themselves to it, which is very, very dangerous thing to do. Um, So yeah, communities are so, so important to this narrative and this this, this understanding of this, Um, firstly, because you need to understand the human approach and the reason why there's a demand for decentralization. And secondly, because without communities, decentralization is isolation, and isolation in any economic format is not a good thing.
0: Totally concur. Um, one final thing I'll say on this before asking you a question that transitions us to some different topics here is uh, before this interview, I was reading about this company called Money Point in Africa. It's a fintech company founded by a gentleman called Tosin Eniolorunda. And um, in the interview, one of the things I was asked was what is particularly different about MoneyPoint in terms of it's kind of recently fairly explosive or sustaining growth in contrast to other fintech players in uh, their submarkets. And one thing they mentioned is they recognized very early on the efficacy of a hybrid distribution model in Africa, which is basically having these offline nodes for distributing their product, even though it's an online, you know, Absolutely. on the phone type thing. And I think that kind of points to the importance of this bottoms-up, community-driven, uh, on-the-ground driven type of approach, which can yield tremendous results. But it requires the investment and the faith in in being able to bridge that gap. If that makes sense, hundred
1: percent. And local knowledge, frankly, you know, you, you try and do that. If you let's try building that idea, sitting somewhere in Westminster and then fly all the way out into rural zambia and make that happen you know it, it's not Damn. gonna work you need to have local stakeholders which is why this is a good thing like respecting local stakeholders and and having a mutual relationship is a fundamentally fun part of this and it works um there are a number of really interesting sort of funds out there really interesting um you know uh opportunities out there of uh, established stakeholders to work with are uh, on on various different levels um it does take a lot of work to unlearn and relearn a lot of the misconceptions that we think we've grown out of that we certainly haven't when it comes to working with emerging markets in order to really leverage that properly. But then there's a separate matter as well, which I think before we move on to the next point is worth raising. It's not all you know fun and games. There are you know increasingly uh, added complications as the world changes and as power structure changes towards doing you know towards engaging in transactions with. Uh, parties from frontier markets. Um, FATAF, OFAC, etc. from the US, the compliance requirements from KYC and AML point of view, et cetera, just making sure that everything is above board is a fundamentally important requirement for anyone who is looking to create a sustainable relationship with parts of emerging markets. And that unfortunately does create tension points and conflict points. And it does require not just local knowledge, but also uh, local expertise to be able to sometimes bridge those gaps in order for there to be a mutual understanding of the value of what the requirements are on both sides of the coin. Totally. One local
0: fact that I will share, which is not local to me, but local, locally shared by somebody else the other day, um, is uh, regarding Libya, which is, as mentioned, similar in terms of being a very cash-based economy, despite its GDP being about $49 billion. It's very cash-rich in contrast to its um, peers. And other potentially very interesting markets to to look at as a wedge for testing out these distribution models for a new kind of currency yes. model. Et cetera, for any you know aspiring folks looking at that,
1: yeah, I, I am I am so interested in Libya and so for so many reasons, but. It's a uh, it's a jurisdiction you don't want to screw with, right? <laughs> you know you 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 really gotta you really gotta know what you're doing with Libya and with Syria and with with a lot of these jurisdictions. It's just not as easy and plain sailing as oh, this looks great on paper. Let's let's go out and do it. Surely everyone wants this, you know? It takes a lot of very deep work and a lot of conversations to understand what people truly want, um, and what can truly happen, um, and of course what the risks are, of which there are multiple. So yes, it. it, it Definitely definitely retain an interest, but uh har- harbor that interest in a healthy manner fantastic
0: um moving on, what is your view on charter cities as a prospective asset class?
1: love them but what do i what do I actually think i mean i I you want to run down on the idea yeah okay so I love charter cities because I love Lego as simple as that <laughs> that on a realistic level, the reason why I love charter cities is because um they you know this concept, this idea of being able to build a community and add some weight to it, some physical weight to it, some monetary weight to it, is what a city is, right? Um, also, if you look at the, the history of how cities have been built historically, economically, you know, they've been based on, frankly, you know, traditional models of society where you have an elite class and you have labor class and then you have. You know, the industrial era has defined a lot of the way the modern city works. I think in order to help perpetuate our evolution from that industrial era into the modern you know, era, um, one has to look at how we live with each other and how our built environment works and the visual aesthetics of that and the public space relevance of that, etc. from a whole new point of view. Um, charter cities allow for that to happen without that sort of remedial cost, right? Um, but, you know... The the next question would be okay. Well, Milton Keynes was a city that was built that was supposed to reflect the zeitgeist at the time politically, etc. Well, is that a charter city? But but the point is that uh, the the very interesting part of this is the charter element, right? The charter is, in my view, the asset. That charter, in my view, is such a strong asset it should sit in the goodwill bracket of any you know of any sort of. Um, book that tries to reflect the 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 asset value of a charter city because that intangible asset that piece of whether you class it as IP or not or whatever you know whatever you want to go down to, to an interesting legal route classifier is essentially the way in which somebody has some understanding of how this city will operate. Right? How it is going to build, how the governance framework for it operates, how it as a city, as a as a community, or as a market, reflects its capacity to be able to be, um, you know, a very, very efficient place fit for the interests of its stakeholders. Um, to look at it from the output perspective saying, okay, well, you know, this city we've built is now coming up with this amount of, you know, GDP, etc. Great, whatever. But like, that's, that, that, that those aren't metrics that are, in my opinion, necessarily completely reliable in sort of understanding what the, you know, what's actually going on under the ground. Charter, uh, the charter part of it is fundamentally important. And, you know, charter cities have been around for ages. Philadelphia is one of the first charter cities, right? Uh, cities that were designed under a particular premise with a particular framework. Um, and, and they are, they're, they're, from, from my perspective, I think that they are a fascinating uh, thing, now, as an asset class to fit in the wider world of uh, of finance, it does take um, interesting and interested people to understand where the opportunity lies with this. Um, the reality is that during COVID, some great ideas were were developed and honed whilst we were sitting there ideating whilst we could not talk to each other, um, and seeing the conversation around charter cities develop during that time, I thought was was wonderful. I think since then, the economic reality is that whilst there is definitely a space for charter cities, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge to try and see how to finance uh, building these sort of cities, the relationship between the equity element, the debt element. Uh, in the emerging markets, or frontier markets, or the glo- markets in the global south, uh, you do have a very traditional model, that's sort of, you know, the... Uh, Uh, direct foreign investment model, where you've got uh, essentially a top-down approach towards money coming in and being disseminated down to be able to build these cities. Um, How one can use that and where one can use that in terms of a capital base to raise leverage from in order to be able to build this infrastructure, frankly, the priority has been trying to make that work for infrastructure in general in sub-Saharan Africa, right? And there's so many reasons why there's, a, there's been a lot of problems uh, in trying to help manifest that. So it's, it's a really complex and complicated thing to actually make it manifest. However, I would say that the reality is it's not impossible. We've seen charter cities operate. We've seen models of charter cities work. We've seen Shenzhen in China. Look how it changed you know the way China operates. We've seen the DIFC in Dubai. Look at the way it's completely changed uh, Dubai's outlooks. If you told me as a kid sort of running around the streets of uh, data with a cricket bat and ball, that this is going to be one of the capitals of the world. Um, you know, I mean, wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> Just as an aside, I remember, you know, going to like primary school in the UK. Um, you know, you come back from every holiday and you have to write, what did you do over the holiday? And I had exactly the same thing I did every holiday. You know, I'd, I went to the Bay, I had like, you know, Gabab Barata from this shop. And then I had, and then I went to that KFC Hardee's that was between Sharjah and Dubai. And then I went to Jazeera Park in Sharjah. And then I went to the beach. And then I, I did the same thing. And then I did it time and time again because that was all there was. And it was wonderful. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, teachers said, you can't keep po- copying everything. You, you, you can't keep writing the same thing again and again. Um, oh. But, you know, seeing that world and seeing how it's changed, and you're looking at why, you know, you're talking about an oil dependent economy that had the foresight very, very early on say yeah no no this isn't sustainable let's go build something bigger than this and whilst you know paris was built on the resources of the river seine and london was built on the resources of the river thames dubai was built on the resources of you know pr and uh financial leverage you know um it's 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 the modern resource it's the way it works for better or for worse and it knew it and it built it um and it knows how to do it and it's doable and it's it's replicable Um, It requires the right stakeholders, it requires the stars to align, but it's very much doable. Um, When charter cities and that model work, it works really, really well, but it won't always work. And that's the important thing. And we won't really be able to have data as to what does and what doesn't until we see more opportunities for this. However, what I would say is the crypto world and the virtual asset world and its mindset, its libertarian mindset more often than not – has done a lot of very interesting good in propelling how charter cities can operate, um, which is ultimately a good thing. But then it has to bring people along with it. You know, uh, one thing that libertarians need to understand is no man is an island. You know, and 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 you know, if you're going to build these things from the basis of a mindset that people should understand and have a buy into, it does require stakeholder engagement how would you describe the energy in Dubai right now as it's essentially coming into its own as a uh, jurisdiction? Um, those that have been on the ground for years call this Dubai Phase 6, right? So you had like Dubai Phase 1, you know, many years ago, uh, call it like, you know, early 70s through. Um, you have Dubai Phase 2 when you suddenly had, you know, uh, Emirates, the Emirates era. Uh, and when, you know, that suddenly there was this, big influx of tourism in and that was when it started changing its capacity from oils let's say you know 80s early 90s then Dubai phase three when it started really developing uh from a real estate perspective laws started changing you can buy property there uh the the, the Burj al arab uh sort of you know era where suddenly there's a massive sale hotel uh in the middle of the sea and, and I was like whoa they can make these incredible infrastructure projects this is really cool then you had Dubai phase four, where you had, uh, you know, the Burj Khalifa, and you know this real sort of, you know, development, which I would say probably happened after the uh, two thousand five, sorry, two thousand eight, two thousand nine uh, crash, out there. Then you had Dubai Phase 5, which was around the sort of, I think the heyday of it, I'd call it sort of 2015, 2016, 2017, where it started really culturally developing and really sort of attracting a lot of younger professionals there who are no longer there just for the 10-year buck and going back home. They were starting to settle in Dubai and started to build it as, as a community and their home. And this is Dubai Phase 6, where it's not just, you know, majority uh Indians Pakistanis, folks from across the Arab world, uh, you know Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, et etc, but wider stakeholders as well you know a, a lot of Russian uh people there, a lot of Chinese people there, a lot of folks from frankly all around the world there uh, and it's an anthropological phenomenon, you know it is not a civil society, and yet it gives the hallmarks of the trimmings of a civil society whilst being there must be a better word for this, but whilst being completely uncivil right <laughs> whilst being you know a uh a a legal structure that has a stakeholder engagement in a, mu- a very different way to the way that we're used to from sort of traditional state-based jurisdictions um so the question as to what's the vibe like um it's mixed it's mixed between you know those who've been there for a long time saying wow this is wild but this is you know beyond recognition there's those who have you know that've been there and are capitalizing from the change are saying this is the most exciting thing this is this is awesome there are those in the cultural scene who are really grateful for the fact that there's a huge um you know appreciation now of dubai's role internationally from a cultural point of view um but then there are also those uh, in dubai who are every wave brings folks to dubai who think that they are the you know going to be the new king of dubai right everywhere there is something about that city where when you land you think you know what i'm going to i'm going to conquer this place i'm going to be the king of the way. and it's amazing i think it's absolutely fascinating just how many people seem to know some shake or another right oh yeah that guy yeah yeah he's a friend we know him we know him right i mean it's physically impossible to have so many people know that many people but it does is the sort of place that does engender this sense of like i feel like i must be you know part of the the power of this place the dynamic of this place it can do strange things to your ego it really really can simultaneously very ironically can do wonderful things in terms of your your spiritual health as well there are some nooks and crannies in dubai where you know the the spiritual practice there is incredibly healthy um and actually you know for an environment like dubai to be able to have that there whilst all of that temptation for the ego is there as well can be a very very empowering process but, you know, it's the Manhattan of the emerging markets, the Manhattan of the global south. You're going to get some of the the, the most complex and the most uh, differing types of people, the most differing types of vibes. But the vibe is there. That Manhattan vibe definitely is there. It, business is booming.
0: Incredible. I think it's on my bucket list to
1: visit in the next uh, 12 months at least. What I would say, Krish, um, I mean, what I would say, Krish, is just be careful. When you're going to visit Dubai... Make sure you do your due diligence, right? Find out what it is you want to know about Dubai. If it's the if you go there and say, "All right, Dubai, show me what you got," um, more often than not, it'll show you what it wants to show you, right? Mm. If you really want to know Dubai, know people, right, and ask people. I genuinely, as a place, one of the best things I love about it is that behind the the facade of the you know people shilling with each other and selling and everyone's a broker and no one's a builder, behind all that. Uh, people really genuinely do operate as a community, right? Uh, people do know each other, want to introduce each other to each other. It's 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 great. I, I love that about the way. Um, and you know, you want to have the sort of experience where, yes, one day you are having dinner at you know wherever Nobu. And then the next day you're having dinner at Bukater, an old fisherman's hut in Jumeirah, and the next day you're having dinner in Deirah and having some of the most incredible crab curry you've ever had in the world, where Jumeirah uh, master chefs go to to learn the recipe. And then the next day you're having drinks at you know some some incredible beach house, you know, having the full diverse Dubai experience is the only way you'll fully get to understand how that place works and what it means, um, and it's super important. To be able to understand that, when you understand, if you want to understand its role as the Manhattan of the Global South, one thing I'm trying
0: to plant seeds for is figuring out what does uh, a better—I hate to use the word playbook here—but a playbook for you know, high-quality um, travel that induces these types of experiences look like, right? I think I'm more familiar with, I guess, the bottoms up approach of serendipity and adventure. Um, I've had, Recently, I was in Eswatini uh, with a friend who's building a fintech company there. And that was my first time experiencing what it's like to really get plugged into the system by somebody who's in the know. And that was something that was very special um, in terms of getting a totally different and very high fidelity view of really what's moving. Um,
1: yeah, a region, absolutely. Uh, well, look, I mean, in terms of a playbook for travel and a playbook for uh, absorption, right? Um, I've always, I've always felt for me that if I'm going to go and say, "All right, Swatini, show me what you got," uh, I'll do so having read a lot about it. I think that going prepared with certain half narratives really helps to a structure some idea of expectation and be completely prepared for that expectation to change. Um, but it gives you some framework in terms of what to look for and what to understand, right? Um, if you're going to fly to, Sa- to Cyprus you know read read a few books about Cyprus's history read 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 also you know elif Shafak has written a great book about you know what it was like love across you know typical elif Shafak uh sort of storybook of love across borders and that sort of stuff um like that 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 kind of stuff is what I do in order to get uh, a view of of a place I also I'm also that guy who reads like the underlying laws of a place, right? The constitution, understand how, like, its governance frameworks work, whether it applies them or not. It's a really, really interesting thing to understand. Okay, well, that's how power works in this place. Super interesting, right? Those sort of, I mean, when I was traveling a lot, and I still do this, but I, I don't have as much time anymore, um, I would I would listen to music from a place. So like Georgia, for example, right? I'd listen to uh, a, like, Georgian chorale music, which is some of the most fascinatingly beautiful music in the world. i try to read you know, basic books about uh, Tbilisi and urban environments in Georgia. And I would read a bit about Georgia's political history. So it's law, right? It's constitution, how it works, etc. Through that, from my perspective, I start to get a framework where I know how to resonate with a place. And when you resonate with somewhere, that's when things start to feed back towards you. The dangerous thing is turning up somewhere, expecting to resonate, having no framework of resonance whatsoever, no no way of interacting. That can be quite dangerous, and 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 it'll also make you feel as though you've come to conclusions that are probably quite inaccurate because you've just made them up. I I I seriously appreciate that. I think um, you know something that Zach mentioned
0: in the previous podcast was part of the motivation. Isn't just you know impact and returns, and a lot of you know other stories we can tell ourselves about, you know, wanting to participate in Frontier and Emerging Markets, it's also about adventure and street food and culture. It has to and be. it kind of bottoms up, you know, approach of relating with people from different parts of the world and having these special experiences. And I, I, I'm really glad you shared that because hopefully for listeners, I know definitely for myself, that is something which... I will aim to embody throughout uh, these explorations.
1: Well, bear in mind, street food is, you know, the universal connector as well, right? I mean, if you if you if you really want a way to be able to get a bottom up approach of the of the opportunity that lies between like Gibraltar and Tangier, right? Go and have street food in Gibraltar, go and have street food in Tangier, and then from there start building your ideas of oh, where can bridges be built, right? Uh, if you do it from a government top down perspective, you're gonna probably waste a lot of money um you know so so that's where we get that's where we go to look go go for i always go for the fact that actually some some truths thankfully still hold universal right um find where the universal truths are then see how each and every place uh channels those truths in their own narrative in their own fashion um the reason why i work with um you know, emerging markets, you know, in general, and I wouldn't even say I work with emerging markets. I just work, and emerging markets just tend to be a part of my life because I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a citizen of the world, right? Um, but the reason why I enjoy it so much is because the, the 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 counterposition to that is what that you you sit in one city, you do the same thing again and again, you look at the world from the the, the lens of your fishbowl. And you have the audacity to have a view on it? Nope, no. I, 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 I really take my views seriously enough to have them tested by experience. You can't do that unless you are working with what we traditionally call emerging markets, right? Um, otherwise known as the world. <laughs> the world, global growth markets. Yeah, someone else
0: called them. Uh, okay, final few questions here, rapid fire. One who inspires
1: you? Oh. Um... Depends on what, right? So, yeah, I'm I'm one of those guys who went into the law because I was inspired by people like Gandhi, Mandela, etc., um, younger years. So, people who are able to transcend the real temptation of material and look at the core value of a thesis and follow that through to its nth degree, whether they are a startup, whether they are a political revolutionary, whether they're, you know, whether your siblings, like, following through on an argument – People who do that inspire me because, you know, the, the, the more in life you get through, the more complicated it gets, the more you realize just how difficult it is to stick to your guns. Those who can do that, it's uh hugely inspiring. And that by the way, and by the way, just that 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 applies across the board. I get inspired by like, you know, somebody sticking to their guns in a pub who's, you know, had somebody Piss them off, right? Uh, yeah, you, yeah, that's right. You stick to your guns, you go for it because it's, it's, we live in a world where people have forgotten how to fight in the right way. um Those who can use their voice and those who do fight and those who can do so, regardless of the outcome, are inspiring as hell in this time that we live in. Fantastic. I,
0: I, self restriction is a word that comes to mind there as well. And uh, in terms of, you know, sticking to one's kind of core values always challenging but important Uh, appreciate that okay second question um, not necessarily a rapid fire here but in terms of uh, your process for thinking about due diligence when it comes to entering a new market uh, buying an asset in a new market uh, trying to grow a company in a new market geographically what what does that process pragmatically look like an operation look like for for yourself or what does it look like in a A sense for other firms? Yeah, local stakeholders started
1: off with, right? Really identifying and doing your due diligence on the local stakeholders, really understanding who it is that in this sort of, you know, blind environment you feel that you get some light from. Um, that's fundamentally important. And that's that's rather a cost-effective way of starting off as well, right? Because then as you get down the line and you start to look under the hood at various opportunities, um, you start to ha- you start to be able to triangulate various different viewpoints towards uh, a truth that is palatable to you, right? Um, these are jurisdictions where you know it's the balance sheet might say X, but if you look at what that balance sheet actually represents, how assets, how accounts are actually managed, etc., uh, you you're in. You sometimes might be in for a rough surprise, right? So if you are, you know, if you're looking for, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this from a an M and A perspective or a, you know an investment perspective. You do have to really blend the quant DD that you do with the qualitative DD. And that qualitative DD has to come through understanding what various different market participants in the ecosystem feel and have to say about it. Uh, the second thing I would say as well is, you know, risk works in a different way in these parts of the world. Don't come with your impressions of, of risk uh, intact. Do what it takes to feel as though you get almost the equivalent of a legal opinion on when it comes to uh, risk in the region. There are things that none of us will know about, that certain parties will, about political risk, about the actual real concentration risk, about uh, you know a number of other risks that might exist towards a particular opportunity uh, that will give you a far more realistic approach towards the opportunity rather than this sort of, you know, um, fettering, uh, you know, this fancy into into the emerging markets uh with without any real understanding also you know you you do annoy people you annoy a hell of a lot of people if you go in and you don't do that kind of due diligence uh they might be happy to to get rid of their assets sell it to you but you leave with a bad taste in the mouth and that's you know that's not a sustainable way of operating right so due diligence is also a form of respect which is important fantastic and final question um what are some projects you're excited about right now Honestly, the Lebanon projects I think is really cool. I'm I'm, I'm really looking forward to try and find a way to explore that more. Um, there are, from a crypto point of view, uh, there are a number of projects that I think are very very cool in the um, in the sort of uh, data center uh, environment. Uh, and and look, from a tech perspective, this is now sort of goes uh, beyond me. But I can instinctively understand the relationship between energy energy markets. Uh, crypto mining uh, in in sort of proof of work circumstances and the capacity to then find a sort of closed loop economic model to be able to make that happen um, take the right time right place but I know parties who are doing this I'm really excited by them I'd, I'd give them by name but um, in fact I can give uh, one by name uh, called uh, Chainergy uh, which I have uh, looked into uh, they're not uh, they're not a client, but they are. I've I've got to know the sort of leadership there as well, and as an idea, it's really cool. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, there are other firms that I that I won't mention, but I, I you know are, are easy for you to, to go and find who are looking at the use of uh, virtual assets from uh, a supply chain perspective when it comes to food, right? Um, and in particular, there's there's one that is building a regulated, closed-loop environment between the governance token and its capacity. Therefore, for various stakeholders down the food chain, say, you know, somebody farming wheat in Pakistan all the way through to the markets where that commodity is being traded, um, all, all basically on the ledger, so to speak. And those are the initial use cases that interested me in blockchain in the first place. I don't really have a personal interest in a lot of the fanciful stuff that's happening in and around web 3 other than that i come from a sort of a real world perspective seen deeply where the real problem real world problems are and seen where blockchain can help um and so that's where my personal focus is on and i think there's some super interesting projects there we haven't even started seeing its capacity yet as we've all kind of you know been following uh various different coins up and down
0: Fantastic. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna ask one more question. That's okay. Uh, any final calls to action or recommended resources for our listeners?
1: Oh, um, calls to action. Um, yeah, I think I, I think it's really important that we recognise that this is probably the first summer since COVID where we feel like we can have a proper summer holiday. Um, have a summer holiday. <laughs> like genuinely, it's as weird as it sounds. Like what 2020 was. 2020 2021 was like okay we're in this weird limbo land 2022 was a rush to recovery uh generally speaking i think 23 we're in now is like okay all right you know we've kind of forgotten that this was literally you know something that happened around the corner um take a break i i genuinely as odd as it sounds take a break and open your mind up to seeing what the world looks like um Rather than doing what I think all of us are doing since COVID, which is oh, this looks this looks like an opportunity. Let's jump. Let's go. I dedicate myself to this fully, fully, fully. Go, go, go. Oh wow, this is interesting now. Let's go to that. Let's go, go, go. go. You know, take a breath. Right, <laughs> it's been wild. Um, another and another thing I would say is in terms of resources. Um, Honestly, from my perspective, we need more resources on looking at emerging markets from the point of view that you, for example, Krish, are trying to expound in At right, uh, looking at them, I, I really don't like the term emerging markets. I don't like even the term frontier markets. Right? They, they, whatever they are, as communities that have economic value, uh, looking at that from that perspective in multifaceted approaches. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these, a lot of the resources that are there are decentralized by nature, right? um so so going to find out who's going to find out about this particular newsletter or that particular thing or that particular thing and so i guess it's part of a call to the action a call to action as well is you know network it's a it's a it's absolutely incredible the power of word of mouth still even with social media even with you know all things on the internet like asking and receiving is still so powerful in terms of getting through to the sort of information that you want um so yeah just remaining curious it's it's so fundamentally important and I will re-emphasize this, don't forget that, because we sit behind our screens every single day expecting the information that we're receiving to be completely validated, without any sort of resonance whatsoever with the human beings the other side of the screen. So remember the human interactions. Noted and wonderful. Thank you very much, Ali Khan. Krish, thanks a lot for your great work, man, and, uh, and, and thanks a lot for inviting me on.